anytime. <laughs> Hello, everyone. I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another edition of Rural Routes, the program where we gather every day at this time. Jenny Swigert, we do it Monday through Friday. We do it Thursday with you. And what we do when we do it is we gather. We discuss the issues between rural and urban America. And on Thursdays, we've migrated into this special feature where we work at connecting food producers to food consumers. The person that makes all of that magic happen is the one that's sitting there glowing today like she's done something <laughs> extraordinary from somewhere in an undisclosed location in central Illinois between Lincoln and Morton. How are you, Jenny Schwager? I am doing well. Thank you. Did you celebrate? Are you? Looks like you're celebrating Independence Day already with your rag with stars on it everywhere. Yes, sir, I am. Did you know the official Independence Day was supposed to be today? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, we officially declared independence on July the second. We call July the fourth Independence Day because that's the day we started signing the Declaration of Independence. Who signed it first? A little history lesson. Um, I want to say George Washington, but I don't think that's correct. Actually, funny you bring that up. George Washington did not learn about our Declaration of Independence until July 8th. John Hancock. John Hancock. Well, I mean, yeah, his name's on it, right? He was the first one. Yeah. There you go. Do you have a guest or am I just going to continue to sit here talking mindless mutter? No, I have an awesome guest. Um, we haven't actually seen each other in 11 years. She is in Nebraska. Oh, my goodness, the good life. And um, we met at, this is Lindsay, and I always forget, do we pronounce the K or not? No, 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 no. it's neural. neural. <laughs> That's what I thought, but I wanted to double check. And Lindsay and I met at a conference in Iowa 11 years ago. Um, it was called iBlog. Um, it was an awesome, awesome venue where we stayed. Um, I, I don't know, like, how the stars aligned, but, like, my girlfriend and I ended up in a hotel, our hotel room. Each room was, like, decorated differently, and everything about our room was dairy, and it was both dairy. we were we still are both dairy people um but it was just really neat and like historical books about dairy in the US and things like that what was your room like it was like the kids room we have you know we have six kids and i think we had three or maybe even four of them uh, i don't know at that time and we just needed places to right. stash children yeah that's right. you had a baby at the time didn't you I always ha seem to have one of those, yeah. <laughs> Lindsay, do you know where they come from so you can fix that? Or Yeah, and we've been asked that a lot <laughs> by well-meaning people. <laughs> hey, don't let other people judge how many kids you have. You decide how many kids you want to have. Hey, Jeannie, I got a little bit of interesting trivia for you. What's that? Where did Lindsay's husband grow up? I don't know that, actually. Four 14 miles from where I live. Really? Yeah, how about that? Interesting. So how far are you, the two of you? 200 miles. Oh, okay. okay. Interesting. Yep. All right. So carry on with your Iowa iBlog conference. You got in your rooms, kids and dairy so, cows. Yeah, no, it was a it was an awesome event. Um, who was the gal that put it together? She is an expert on touring Ireland and a travel blogger. 
who we probably should have on at some point. Um, I can't recall her name right off the top of my head, but um, that was where I learned to use Twitter, actually. Really? In fact, I set up my first account with the entire room, which was, I think, maybe 150 people. They helped me send my first tweet, my first retweet. Um, so that was kind of a, a really historic event for me. But um, Lindsay, I connected with because of her writing, and she's an extraordinary writer on all sorts of different topics. But you focused mainly, I see, like on um, health, elderly health, and then she's got tons of small business information um, if you go to her website. So can you tell us a little bit about, you do have a little connection with ag, but what is sure. your connection, I guess, as a consumer? Sure. Um well, my family farmed. Uh, I live two houses down from the one I grew up in, you know, 40 years ago. Um, all the land around me has been owned by my family at some point or farmed by my family. Um, I just grew up in a house that was, you know, lambing or harvesting or, you know, it was just everything. And then um, I came back as came back to a rural part of Nebraska after living in Omaha for a few years because we have five boys out of the six kids and they need room to run and do their thing. And now I'm kind of seeing things from a consumer perspective versus a producer perspective. And things honestly have really changed. Um, the market's changed. I think what consumers want has changed. I'm looking at it from a mom that wants to give my kids, um, you know, nutrition and accessibility, but also I'm looking at it from a writer that covers finance and the markets. And, and so I'm kind of getting all these different backgrounds intersecting in the middle and it's kind of crazy and interesting. Um, but I think about food a lot. I think I've always thought about food. I grew up in a, semi food insecure household. I say that with, you know, some nuance because in the eighties, a lot of farm families were kind of wondering, um, what are we going to do next month when payments right. come due? So I've carried a lot of that. Um, my husband and I feel like stability for us as a family is food in the fridge. So food is just a big part of how we define, um, providing, I guess. So my question right off, Lindsay, would be, uh, how do you see what has happened in 2020 affecting people's overall food purchases and what they're seeking to buy? Right. Well, um, it's funny because my husband and I have both had periods of time where we've worked full time and mm -hmm. then we've had periods of time where we've been caregivers. So. Um, now we're both home and we've always split grocery shopping. Um, he's done it. I've done it. When we started out 20 Wait years ago. Wait a minute. Ago, whoa, 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 whoa. A husband that grocery shops? Tell this dude to stop it. He's screwing it up for the rest of us. That doesn't happen. <laughs> he on. loves it. And he always brings me home something like a treat. <laughs> oh, oh, my so goodness. It. it just gets worse. <laughs> Go ahead, Lindsay. 
So we used to do, you know, coupons. 20 years ago, coupons was the thing. Um, And then it it was circulars, and it was matching the coupons to the circulars. Um, And then coupons kind of went away. Um, And then it was matching the circulars to our cookbooks and trying to find out what's going to be on sale that we can um, cook, that we enjoy, that we can feed all these children with. And this year has just been... I, there isn't even a word. Um, <laughs> there isn't a word we can say on the radio. That's the moral well, of the story. Planning just isn't, you know, for people that plan, I like to plan. I have to plan. It's irresponsible of a parent not to at least try. Um, plans fail, but you at least want to get something down on paper. And um, grocery shopping has just been like going to a garage sale. <laughs> you cannot... Anticipate that's the best comparison I've heard yet. Wait a minute, yeah. garage garage sale things are, yeah. have already been used. Are you saying grocery <laughs> stores are now selling food that's already been used? At times, it looks like it, but <laughs> in the beginning, that is so true, though, because a lot of the meat was coming from restaurants who had already purchased the meat and needed to sell the meat and. So it was repackaged and then sold in a grocery store, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we live in a very small town. We have a local grocer. But uh, I remember the day they put on Facebook that the food truck was coming. I don't think in my entire life I knew what day the food truck was coming. It didn't matter to my planning. Uh, Mm -hmm. The assumption was... You know, the Chex Mix or whatever fancy chip might be out by the time I get there the last day of the week. But um, they're always going to have apples. Um, now, with with the way things are, we've had to think about, do we shop at 10 a.m. because we would like some apples? Um, something that's just a staple. And it's really thrown our view of food security into uh a disrupted kind of phase again. So it's, it's a little bit like going back to being a kid and, and feeling not in control, which for somebody who knows where the food comes from and kind of the logistics of it, it's a very, very big, big shift. I have to be in control of the clock and it's time that we take a break. We are continuing our discussion here, connecting food producers, food consumers on a roll route. Jenny Swigert, Lindsay Narl is alongside. I want to remind you about Neogen shining a light on your your genetic future. Get more details about increasing maternal characteristics genomically at neogen.com. We'll take a break. We'll be back. More roll route after this. Welcome back to Roll Route, Trent Luce, alongside Jenny Schweigert from Illinois, always dealing with technical issues, dragging her along, Lindsay Narl. She's just there making it work. Ah, Michelle says your audio is not bad, Jenny, so that's good. Uh, I'm not going to change No, maybe we should stay hooked, Lindsay, on the kid aspect because... You referenced a couple of things during the break that I really want to expand upon. How tough is it to nutritionally feed kids properly at a reasonable cost? Well, I think it's easier than um, the budget that the, is it the USDA or the FDA? There's some family budget that they come out with. Yes. Yeah. We've always come well under that. Um, 
and I don't feel like we really go without a lot. But I know we live in an, in an area of the country where costs are significantly lower, um, and that's by design. So I know when I live where I live that I'm not going to be able to grab a latte um, at a moment's notice, uh, but there are some economic advantages to that. Uh, I think that we're blessed that my children are all healthy, and so they don't have um, any very specific food um, you know, intolerances or allergies or, you know, anything that would keep us from just putting together a, a nice mash and gravy and a lean meat and a veggie, which is basically a lot of what we eat. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. You just said my beer buzzword. Gravy? Lean meat. Lean meat. Oh. My, one of my buzzwords. What do you mean by that? Um, well... I like the fattiest meat you can throw at me, but um, we do grass-fed local beef when we can. If it can be finished off with some corn, um, which most people around here do, that's great. Mm -hmm. Um, But, uh, you know, we have our own poultry. Uh, We've had turkeys, lamb, goat. Um, Most things that are raised around here are pretty lean in that sense. I I don't mean... uh, I'm trying to think of even our pork is considerably lean to what I probably ate growing up. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I stopped you because I just wanted to spend a moment. We all get hung up in that term lean meat. In fact, our entire beef checkoff program is based around lean meat, which makes no sense whatsoever to me because we feed cattle to be a higher level of intramuscular fat. That's how we reward cattle cattlemen for better quality cattle. We also know from a great work at Texas A&M Research Project that the intramuscular fat is a monounsaturated fat that contributes Mm. to heart health, the same as olive oil. And yet we fall into this trap of talking about lean meat. 51, here's the best news of the day. 51% of the fat in bacon is monounsaturated fat, that fat that you need to have in your diet on a daily basis. And so many times we look at look at meat and we think it needs to be lean meat. There is tremendous health benefits. In fact, I'll go so far as to say many Americans are fat deficient, the right kinds of fats. And so we need to kind of retool all of that. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Well, I'd be glad to give you the research to back that up, but I I just wondered if, if you were aware of any of that. Um, you know, I probably use the term like a lot of us do or, um, you know, I guess when I think, <laughs> uh, I think of meat in a way where I'm thinking not processed, and that might be part of the disconnect. Is it's a a piece of meat that most of our food is is the original, whatever it was, whole, whole cut, prepared. Yeah. Um. So not getting something out of the freezer that's like a minced meat with a bunch of other things added is maybe more what I think of because I don't think of that as is lean in a sense because mm-hmm. I know that's a lot of the the extra parts um but no i think you're right and i think a lot of that's just the way we've been conditioned to talk about um what we serve our kids too that's four minutes and 22 seconds jenny swaggart hasn't said a thing we've got a new record here on roll route independence week 2020 just saying did you have something you want to weigh in there jenny well so i have a question what do you mean by um not as processed just that I can look at it and know what it is. 
Um, it's simple um, because I know when I get something uh, from our butcher, uh, for example, we get our, our cow and our, our pig every uh, half a year locally. Um, so we buy it from a farmer, the local place, 15 Oakland processes it. Um, we pick it up in the van and we put it in our big freezers and I take a piece of meat out and I know what part it came from. Um, and I know the best way to prepare it and how to use the bones and the everything. Um, and that to me is the farthest thing from processed. And that's the end we try to stay on. What is the difference between that model, I guess, and going to the grocery store and buying meat there? Um, as far as the process, <laughs> I mean, would you consider that still being processed? Or no, would I do consider that being processed versus going to your local locker and not being processed. Well, there's the processing. I'm sorry. There's the word processed, which, you know, is like the processing of the meat from hoof to table. But then when I think of process, I'm thinking more like a ground up meat byproduct, like a, a a chicken, I don't want to say chicken nuggets because there's some chicken nuggets. They're not all created equal. Um, things where my kids look at it and they can't tell you what it was in its previous life. I think of that as more processed, if that makes sense. Do you eat ground beef? I do. I do. Um, and when we eat it, because it's local, um, I, I can, I don't want to get graphic, but you know, there are imperfections. So you can see like, the fat and the, the sinew and the different things. Um, you know, I, I like it. So, I mean, I know it's meat. It, it's actually processed meat. It is. But then can you define process? Cause the whole cutting off of the animal is a, is a process. And nice point. Great point. Yeah. Right. And I guess that was my point was whether you're getting it from your local locker, Oakland, or you're going and you're buying it from a big store, grocery store, Kroger, whatnot, it's still going through the same process. Yeah. Yeah. The big difference is, and Trent, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong here, but the big difference is the packaging and how it gets from that processing place to you in a grocery store. Trent? Nothing to correct there. Um, oh, okay. The, the, the only difference is, and, and I think this is what you're alluding to, and just didn't quite create that visual. When you take an animal to Oakland, you are getting back that animal that you took in there. Um, when you go to the local grocery store, the whole cuts are there. The ground beef portion, you know, that is the, the product of several animals, in some cases thousands of animals that are put in a big bat. The meat is ground. It's safe. The fat is added, whether it's an 80-20, 90-10, or whatever the case may be. So the biggest one difference in my mind, I think you're alluding to, Jenny, is that you're eating the components of one animal from the local processor. You're eating if in the ground beef case, only in the ground beef case or any other processed meat, further processed meat, uh, you're eating the components of several animals combined into a bat. Is that where you were going? Yes. Yes and no. Yes. Um, I think that's an important part of it, but I also just wanted to make, I guess the point that both products 
are processed. And because I don't want folks to think that the food in the grocery store is bad because it's processed versus a small locker and thinking that it's not processed. Because right. the, the meat that's in the store, I mean, that comes from farmers who are working their butts off. And, right. you know, there's there's still farmers behind that. It's It's not like the meat appears from the grocery store. The grocery store doesn't make the meat. The farmers raise the meat and then the meat gets to the grocery store. Um, so I just wanted to make that that clear that. Um, yeah, and I, you chimed in on this as well. I made a comment about a label and I think that we can go there in the next segment, not this segment, because I only have 45 seconds left. But, um, you know, well, maybe we should just hold it. Lindsay, you want to weigh in on that before I close up this segment? Anything you'd like to weigh in there? No, just the processor. I do. I do. And I, it, we buy from chain stores as well. Um, it's, it's just the closer it looks to what it is, the more comfortable I am in, in buying it, whether that's from my store or my local um, yeah. processor locker. It, and, Eric Lee just chimed in on exactly why I chose not to continue that discussion because I knew it was going to be big and then I'd be in a problem. So that's exactly where we'll go in the imported aspect of it when we return with the second half of Roll Routes. Before I let you go, I want to talk about one U.S. beef supply, which is based in Nebraska, Lindsay. You'll love this. And it's a lot of Nebraska producers, Great Plains producers, and the certified Piedmontese system. Get more details about how you as a cattleman can capture more of the consumer's food dollar go to the website www.lonecreekcattleco.com ask for marlin will and say hey do how do i get paid properly for these cattle that i'm producing that possess the myostatin gene for tenderness that's what it's all about more roll out after this welcome back to roll route trent loose alongside Lindsay gnarl she's in my home state the good life of nebraska Jenny Swaggart, on the other hand, she's in the state I chose to leave in 1988, Illinois, the land of Lincoln. Let's get into this. Eric Lee uh, generates a comment that is worthy of a discussion, and I happen to know the figures because it is the hottest topic, if you don't know this, in all of agriculture, and that is imported beef in particular. 5% of the cattle that we harvest in the United States came into this country from another country, only two countries, Mexico and Canada. That's the only two countries we bring in cattle from live. 5% of the beef sold in the stores, in addition to that 5%, is imported from another country, primarily from Australia, where we take their trim, blend it with our extras to make that ground beef that we're talking about earlier. So, 10% of the U.S. beef supply originates outside of the United States as a live animal. 5% walks in, 5% comes in a box. I'm curious, just on the onset, what, what do those numbers mean to you as a consumer? Um, You know, I think I'm of the mindset that the numbers don't mean much if I don't know what pool I'm buying from. Um, 
it could be 90%. It could be 1%. If, if, if I don't know when I'm buying something, which, which bucket I'm, that's, I can't make it. I just need to be able to make a good informed decision. And I know there's a lot of talk about labeling and, and that sort of thing. And I'm of the mindset that I should be able to buy whatever's out there, whatever the market offers, wherever it's from, as long as I know enough to be able to make the decision to buy, um, you know, import versus export. Does it matter to you if the cattle came in as what we would call feeder cattle are fed in our system, processed in our system, so they've been here the majority of their life, and then they come to you in the, as a consumer? Does it matter that they started in Canada? Oh, that didn't go so good, did it, Jenny? What no. Can you oh, hear me? For whatever reason, you sound fantastic right now. Okay, I fixed it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's fabulous. And I'm pretty sure Lindsay will be back. She just had some technical issue. Uh, yeah. As she is right now. Uh, so we just make it work on the fly right here. Hey, guess what, Lindsay? While you were gone, guess what Jenny got done? Uh, her audio? How about that? Can you hear me now? Thumbs up, everybody. All right, back to the original question. Lindsay, does it bother you that these cattle were Thanks, born Chris. in Canada, then come in and, and to the United States and fed in our system? Um, uh, goodness, Let's, what a slippery question there. Um, <laughs> can I rephrase your question, Trent? Sure, absolutely. Does it make a difference to you if your beef comes from Canada versus China or Brazil? That's what we call a pregnant pause in this world. Can she can she hear me? I don't know. Did you, she's still thinking, I think. Oh, you're still thinking. Okay, I'm sorry. It's okay. Um knowing okay, so we have feedlots right down the road from us. We sure. we see we see kind of how things work and knowing what I know, I know that there's a lot of times you'll buy a livestock in the fine, you know, there's various stages you can purchase ahead of cattle, right? Um, mm-hmm. Feeder calves all the way to the very, very end where I meet a farmer and I buy one that's ready to go and then we work out the details so that I can get it processed locally. Um, I don't know necessarily how they treated that cattle if I don't go to their location. Um, there's sort of an implicit, you know, a trust there. Um, I guess what you're asking is, do I trust some countries up to a certain stage and then no longer trust them. Um, I don't know. I I don't know that we know how to think about those things. Um, They're good questions. Um, And I don't know that people even know that this is going on. So that's maybe the first um, part of figuring out what the right answer is. I don't know. And and just to to clarify, Jenny, we have, there are no cattle come from Canada or from China. We do come from Canada twice as many come from Mexico into our feeding system as come from Canada. Does that change your opinion? Keep in mind, again, we're talking about 5% of the cattle in the United States. Does it matter? Uh, And and I would say, does it matter if it's the one I'm buying? I I mean, if I'm not the one buying it, I might not think it matters. I mean, this is as a consumer, 
what matters to me is what product I buy, bring home and feed my children. So if there's a disruption or a giant recall, you know, when I when I buy one hundred and eighty dollars worth of hamburger from a, a chain grocer and then I'm told the next week, oh, you have to throw that all away and come and get a refund. This this creates a rift in how we think about food. And so, you know, I know farmers and I know their intent. I know their purpose. But if it's 5% or 90%, it doesn't matter if I don't know the one hamburger I'm bringing home to my child, which bucket that goes in. I, I would guess that I would probably be okay with buying some of it, but knowing that I know and being able to be given the option to make that choice is, is kind of important to me, I guess. Mm-hmm. I guess what I was getting at, um, are you familiar with the term cool or M cool? Mm, no, I don't believe so. Trent? Mandatory country of origin labeling, which is oh. um, the now that so it's just the acronym that you but yeah it's a, the discussion about mandating country of origin labeling which i'm not in favor of by the way as a cattleman i'm not in favor of that and why well my primary reason is as the language was written the first time mandatory of country of origin labeling was in place and then it was rescinded because the world uh, trade organization said it was not uh or ethical, whatever their term was. Um, the language said that all meat sold through uh, grocery chains need to be labeled in the country of origin, including born, bred, and harvested in the USA. If it didn't have all of those things, it could not be labeled from a product of the US of A. But there was an exclusion for all ground beef at food service. 52% of the beef consumed by the United States consumer is ground beef. And we now know that 52% of all food prior to March 1, 2020 and COVID was also consumed at food service. So we just eliminated, by the way the law was written, over half of the, the beef sold in the United States would not even fall under the law. They had an exemption to come out of the law. It makes no sense whatsoever for us to have the cost of doing business, which, by the way, is passed along to you, the consumer, and ultimately the producer has to pay for it. The middleman, the packer, and the retailer never pay for it. They just pass it one way or the other. We're paying for a cost that, in the end, doesn't really accomplish what people thought that it was going to accomplish. That was my main objection and continues to be. And by the way, chicken was completely exempt. That doesn't make any sense. Why exempt chicken and make cattlemen pay for a law that is completely antiquated? How did, where does pork, pork fall? In terms of imports, pork was included in the mandatory oh. country of origin labeling. We okay. import some live pigs as feeder pigs from Canada. We bring in some pork from Canada. It's really the, well, we're importing pork right now from Poland, which doesn't make any sense for me either, because Poland is a African swine fever positive country. We, we continue to import pork from there. Smithfield's doing that to try to control the pork price in the United States. The USDA has not stepped up and done anything about that. But pork was in the guise of mandatory country of origin labeling. Not as big of an issue because we don't have the same level of segregation other than those pigs that come in from Canada. It was pri- It's really a beef angst issue 
See, I don't have a problem with, I want to know, okay, well, I first should state that all meat that we eat is either, <laughs> it's either shot, grown, and raised here. Mm-hmm. Very rarely, the only uh, exception would be like lunch meat. But I want to know what country my meat is coming from if I were buying it in the store. At what price? How much more are you willing to pay for U.S. beef or meat? Let's, let's all meat. See, because that that's what it comes into, back to. But that gets into a whole other discussion because there's so much that goes into the price and the grocers and the packers. And I know that part of that falls back on when they're creating labels and having to put that on labels and all of that. But in the big scheme of determining price, I think that that label is a very small part. It's not the cost of the label that's the problem. It's the segregation of the animals. So if you're going to have uh, US of A labels as the mandatory of country and origin labeling was put forth, you have to segregate those animals in the packing plant and through the entire system. The cost is in the structure of feeding the animals through the system, not in putting the label on. Okay. So you can know because, so we, you can go to a feedlot in, in Colorado. And there are many in Colorado that have pens of cattle that are here from the United States, here from Canada. And if you deliver them to the plant, you then have to keep separate these cattle and all of the products that come from them, even though they've been in the United States twice as long as they were in Canada. And so you systematically, those plants have got to keep everything segregated in order to accomplish what the law states. The biggest problem I have with, I, I just, I'm not in favor of mandates of any type. I don't think I should be mandated to have a driver's license. I don't think I should be mandated to, I got to do, I got to have a license to do everything in the United States according to the government other than have kids. I was just going to say, except to be a parent. Yeah. Lindsay, we're not talking about you, the mother of six in that statement, by the way. I'm just saying we do need to go to a break. We've got one segment left. Jenny and I are doing too much talking. We need our guest to chime in and she will, because we had a good discussion. So what is her opinion of what she is hearing? That's where we'll pick it up. Before I let you go, Jenny, did you watch the stand at Paxton County on Netflix yet? I knew you were going to ask me that. I have not had a chance. I've got lots of stuff I've had to do outside lately. Okay, that's not an excuse. Lindsay, this is one of the top 20 watched movies on Netflix in the month of May. And Jenny Swigert will not take the time to watch something that is affecting farms and ranchers every yeah, single day. Watch the, stand love to at, watch the stand. The stand at Paxton <laughs> County on Netflix. Watch it. Check it out. We'll be back with the final segment of Roll Route right after this. <laughs> That's not fair. I was moping to dark last night. <laughs> back in three, two, one. Welcome back to Rural Route, Trent Loose. You were not mowing till dark. It gets dark in Illinois at 930. It's not like you're in Nebraska where it's dark at 1030. Rural Route, last segment. You're much better when you're all fired up, Jenny. Yeah, I know. I know. So Lindsay. I'm here, Lindsay. Yeah, now, I do too. 
comment from Margaret because Margaret has said in comments, I do not trust China at all. And that's a valid concern. But just I want to clarify when we're talking about beef, I had used that as an example earlier, just a random out of the that, air. That was a bad example. example actually. It was a bad example. Very yeah. bad example. Yeah. Um, but we, we don't beef bring do beef not from come China. from China. No. So we do though. We do, and everybody's going to find this distasteful. Yeah. We do harvest chickens in the United States, send them to China to be processed, and then bring the chicken back and put it in our grocery stores. We do do that because we have and labor cotton. issues. And all oh, cotton's huge, yes. All right, we Lindsay. We can get into that next week. Lindsay. Your turn. What do you think after hearing that? Um, well, first of all, I want to give two big thumbs up to less regulation because I'm kind of a less regulation kind of girl myself. Um, <laughs> I, I actually have a question, and my question is my answer. Do we have enough people in the United States that, because we say anecdotally that, you know, we do want to know where our food comes from, and we would pay a little more to know that. Do we have enough demand in the U.S. to have a processing location or two that is a U.S. only processing location that, you know, is centralized enough um, that people that want to be able to say this was produced here locally from local cows and that cost could be passed on to voluntarily give that country of origin information. I, I kind of tend to think that markets work things out if not overly legislated. Um, and so I wouldn't want things to be mandated, especially if they favor chickens over pork, over beef. Um, clearly that's how most of our legislation goes awry is favorites, but is there enough demand for someone like me who would drive to a, a butcher and buy, you know, $1,800 worth of beef at a time and really strain the budget to know, could that same interest be widespread enough to where processors can start saying, okay, this is going to be a local only and, and you have to know that your, your cows are from this country of origin. If so, is that a solution or is that just, Overly simplistic. I, I don't know. You just nailed it. You nailed it better than anybody I've ever heard in this discussion. Because we know that the, the, the packers, the processors, the retailers are profit-driven. And if the demand and the willingness to pay for what it is we're talking about here was there, they would be doing it. Quite frankly, I don't want them to do it. Because I and Jenny and all small farm producers... We can do that voluntarily, like you just said. We talk about it. We grew this on our farm. This is what we do in Sherman County, Nebraska. And if you think that that's rewarding, then we'll supply you with our product. That's a niche that we provide. And it's the only advantage that we have in the marketplace, quite frankly, today. And by mandating country of origin labeling, which I'm 100% in your camp on mandates are just bad, we're creating a, a bigger challenge for smaller producers than we could ever imagine. But it's because it comes back to what you just said. People are not willing to pay. Enough people are not willing to pay for what it is you described to make that worth it. Otherwise, they'd be doing it now. Do you think, though, that the fact right now, the earliest slot that I can get scheduled is July of 2021? Mm -hmm. I mean, that tells me that there is demand. There is demand, but what's the percentage of people that are scheduling those 
pigs and cattle and sheep. In the picture of 330 million Americans, it's not many. The infrastructure is not there to handle. I, I'm guessing it's 10% of the food that's consumed. I'm just guessing that number, but it, it cannot be significant. Are, am I saying that we, that we like Jenny, or I'm sorry, Jenny, Lindsay, just down the road from her is one of the few custom packing plants at Elkhorn. There's a, a packing plant that's empty. It's not operating. It's sitting dark. And people are talking about how do we get this? I do think we should increase the Why? infrastructure. But yeah, that's a great question. And we need the answer to that. Why? But it's just, it's been sitting there for a couple of years, not been used. Um, I only know of three in the state of Nebraska, but I think that we should invest more in the infrastructure to accomplish this because clearly now we're very short and limited on those supplies. I want to go to what Michelle Smith has brought up here because I think this is a great question and one that I have uh, Glenn Tunsor yeah. from Kansas State who addresses this. It's hard for people to realize that by uh, selling our products and importing beef, we actually put more money in the cattleman's pocket. That makes no sense whatsoever, except when you think about the beef that we bring in from Australia, and again, I use Australia because it's our number one beef importing country. That's the beef that we put in the trim that we put in to make ground beef. Our number one beef consumer is Japan. So we sell high-end cuts, primals, ribeyes, tenderloins, and things like that to Japan for a lot of money, quite frankly. And if we were not tapping into that extra money that we get from Japan, we would have to grind those high-end value cuts and put it in the ground beef because, as we've already stated, over half of the beef consumed in the United States is ground beef. So by selling the high-end cuts to Japan and buying product from Australia for about a third of what it was, we actually put more money in the beef structure in the United States. So by exporting high-end value cuts, importing cheaper cuts, we actually increase the value to producers. And that, that, Michelle, is a great question that I think we need to spend a lot more time on. Does that make sense, Lindsay? Yeah. Yeah, and I, I'm kind of curious how, you know, this is a whole other conversation, but I feed my children at home. We homeschool. Um, so that is a big part of it, too. There's, you know, my kids aren't getting the, you know, two meals a day from whatever meat is contracted with the school system, which is, you know, labeled and sourced and, you know, completely different conversation. Uh, but I'm more aware maybe just because of the fact that, you know, the food my children consume are all purchased by myself or my husband. And so we're a little bit more aware when the rest of the families are this summer trying to figure out, you know, no school lunch, which is a big help to a lot of families. Um, you know, this has been business as usual during this entire uh, COVID Thing. So things people are starting to ask questions about, I think there's opportunities um, that maybe we didn't have before. I'm going to say one more thing on that with the, the mandatory cool. You know, I think that we could really make some progress and maybe I don't have enough facts to come to this decision or this thought, but I think we could make a huge impact if we had a, North American label of origin so that people know that the products came from North America versus other places. And the reason I say that is I know that Canadians are one of the biggest people who are affected if we go to the mandatory. Cool. There are so many 
operations right at the border of the U.S. and Canada that, you know, part of that animal's life could be spent in Canada, then brought down to the U.S., and then it's put a label on as being U.S. So I can see where they object to it, but why not, why not a North American label? Lindsay already answered that. More regulation is not the solution. Less regulation, <laughs> right. less government intervention is the solution. If consumers, and Lindsay's case in point, if she wants to know who and where her food is produced, she's seeking that out and she's feeding her family that way. Let the consumer decide. Leave government out of it. Are the consumers, do they have enough initiative? And are they not? Uh, no. No, they don't. Otherwise, we can make changes because it's all consumer-driven. And I guess that's my point is, as a society, we are lazy. We want to know right. where something but, is from, but, but we putting, are not going to take the time to look into where it I, came from. I agree 100%. So why go to the trouble of putting another label on there that they don't care about? But they would care about it. And they do want to know, or so they say. But they don't want to go to the effort of going and digging and researching and finding out. So they say. I agree with you 100%. So they say. Uh, Lindsay, I was excited when we started, and then we got lost in country origin labeling. I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying we did. Um, Suddenly, my latest issue that's top of mind for me, mainly because I have two daughters now working in nursing homes, is our elderly health. And I thought we were going to talk more about that, particularly nutrition. You want to give us just a a 34,000-foot view of what you see happening there? Well, um, my 90-some-year-old grandmother, who's now considered homebound, medically homebound, um, just various health conditions and then the the crazy going on in the world. Um, Nutrition is hard, but I think the the biggest thing is that even if we make nutrition available, unlike children um, who kind of have to, to some degree, be told what to eat, you can't tell someone who's lived so many generations on this earth that they have to eat their vegetables. (laughs) Um, and so there's a big difference between making programs available, making them affordable, and then getting people who at 91 years old are just like, I've lived this long, good luck, to actually do them. It's the facilitation and then, you know, the, the, they have free will and they have a lot of it. So a lot of people at that age, um, you know, it may be just a matter of education, maybe a matter of accessibility, maybe a matter of affordability. But then a lot of it is simply if, if nutrition wasn't a high priority in their life, uh, good luck. Because at 40 some, I don't want people telling me what to do. I know my grandma doesn't want anyone telling her what to do. So that's a whole nother um, aspect that I don't see addressed really very often. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Our oldest Libby is a registered dietitian in a nursing home in Maryland at the moment. And she's always having this discussion with me. And I said, Libby, if people had access to the information before they got to this point, you wouldn't have to. There's nothing wrong with ice cream. Ice cream is wonderful. I want it every single day. But when you're 90 and you want four bowls of ice cream every single day and you've got diabetes numbers that are off the chart, maybe two instead of four would be okay. But my biggest angst with all of this is let's get the information to people when they're 40 so they don't have the same issues when they're 90. At 90, do what you want. Jenny, final word. I don't know. My grandparents are 97 and 93. My 97-year-old grandpa is still driving, and he is sneaking out so he can go through the Culver's drive-thru. And they have eaten 
Like, Would you be careful when you say your 97 year old grandpa is sneaking out? Come on. <laughs> he is though. And my grandpa is sneaking For ice cream. <laughs> Lindsay, you got to come back. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. <laughs> I'm Trent Lewis, Jay Swagger. Lindsay Narl, we have all successfully journeyed down the road connecting rural and urban America. All three of us remind you that all roads do lead to a roll route. See you tomorrow. <laughs>